again to Core Ideas, a paleolimnology podcast. As usual, I am one of your co-hosts, Adam Jesiorski, joined as always by... Josh Thienpont. Thanks for coming back again. All right. And so today's episode, uh, we're continuing to round out our uh, kind of series on fundamentals. And today we're going to be talking about um, physical and chemical indicators within the sediment. So contrasting strongly with episode two, where we're talking about the biological remains in the sediments, here we're talking about various chemical signatures and physical properties of the sediment itself that can be used to infer uh, long-term environmental change. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the topic of today is going to be a little bit more... Uh, where we'll spend a little bit less time on each thing. There's a lot of things we want to cover, and it's going to link a little bit between really all of the episodes. We're going to uh, contrast, as Adam said, with episode two when we were talking about biological indicators, though there are some things that we uh, intentionally left out of that episode that fit a little better here. We're going to talk a little bit about isotopes, which contrasts with episode three on radioisotopes and dating. And then uh, everything is linked to taking the sediment cores. But one of the things we often think about quickly after retrieving one of these sediment cores is the physical makeup of that sediment. So that'll be the first thing we talk about. So it's going to link all of those together and and hopefully provide uh, some of that stuff that may not be as familiar with uh, with some of the people listening because there's a lot of different physical and chemical uh, properties of sediment that can be analyzed. And uh, this is going to be a little sampling of all of them. And a key thing to keep in mind is... As always, uh, we keep harping on about you have to tailor your study to the questions you're trying to answer because, you know, the simple fact of the matter is you can't do everything. There's going to be a limited amount of sediment available. Some of these methods are destructive, i.e. they use up some of the sediment to get the measurements um, that you're looking for. Um, so in any given interval, um, you're going to have to pick and choose how you're going to allocate your sediment depending on what it is you're actually trying to find out about the lake and the uh, watershed in, in question. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, some of these methods are very sediment intensive in addition to being, especially some of the chemical methods, um, in addition to being uh, destructive. And uh, one of the whole things about starting your paleolimnological analysis is thinking about the order in which you uh, would undertake some of these analyses because some of the later chemical ones we'll talk about requires knowing something about the sediment in terms of the organic carbon content of the sediment. So that would be something you would obviously want to do first. Uh, but you, in that same interval, you may need to date that interval. You may be looking at biological indicators. You may be collaborating with someone who uh, is going to be doing all sorts of different analyses. So Putting this all together on paper before you actually start getting into any of these bags of sediment, if, you, if they've been discreetly broken up, is a, is a critical first step to really think about before you start destroying mud when maybe some of these analyses could be done all in a non-destructive technique and then move on to those. Absolutely. And uh, the, the, the re analyses really begin on, on a, um, I guess, surficial level, you know, pun intended, uh, would be the second that you take the core uh, or retrieve the core out of the water because straight away you're going to be looking at it. You're going to be looking for very obvious color changes or texture changes within the um, within the core profile. So like a classic one I remember being pointed out very, very early on was collecting cores in Muskoka. That area was clear-cut. Um, in the mid to late 1800s and looking for a general color change that would, was visible to the naked eye um, 10, 15 centimeters down the, uh, down the core just to get a rough idea of is my core long enough to um, address what I'm looking at. Um, similarly, similarly, if uh, you pull up the core and see alternating layers of light and dark, it's like, oh, we got varves here. All of a sudden, our dating became a lot much, a lot easier. Yeah, and or some sort of lamination for sure. Yeah, which can tell you even if they're not varved about the environment that they're being deposited in. Absolutely. You know, and again, I've never encountered this, but um, you know, if you're in an area of volcanic activity, you might be able to see a ash layer very visibly uh, in in the core as well. Um, and so, what you'll be doing as you're 
pulling pulling the cores out is taking pictures of them. Um, if you're working with like a piston core type sediment, you'll also be doing some like visual to see, looking to see whether you potentially overlap or also keep a record of top versus bottom. So when you ship them all back to the lab intact, uh, you know, having a good idea of what the actual order was. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a really key point. So the first thing we'll talk about as we get into some of these physical and chemical indicators is analyses that can be done on cores when they're whole. Uh, but if you're sectioning the core, especially if it's a gravity core, uh, at the lakeside or very soon after, you're never going to see it back together again once you've taken and in and sectioned and extruded it into discrete intervals. So this is the time to take those pictures, take those notes and write them down in your notebook um, just before you're ready to section those because you'll never really get them back together again. And that's the last time you'll be able to see that full core profile if you section it right away. Moving on, so if you don't section it right away, one of the um, key, uh, I guess, technical technological uh, ways that you'd be beginning your analysis would be whole whole core scanning. And so this is when you're using um, instrumentation to um, measure what you can't see visually. And so there are very um, uh, expensive uh, pieces of equipment that are you know specially made for dealing with uh, full cores or I guess split cores, so like half a core, so you'd have a flat surface. And um, I'm sure there are more models and companies out there, but the one that I'm most familiar with in the limited amount that I am familiar with it would be uh, iTrack scanners, uh, which might be familiar to some of the people listening to this. And so this is the kind of thing that you can be using to do a general uh, measurement of metals within your core and using techniques such as X-ray fluorescence would be one of the scans that would be possible with this kind of machine. Yeah, I think the specific um, profile of scans that are done on and cores depends on the model of any of the units, depending not just whether it's an iTrax versus another company, but which model you buy. But the idea being that you can scan the entire core length after it's been split in half. These are, again, generally done with cores that are of a, a thicker composition that don't fall apart like a gravity core would. And that allows you to get... The nice thing about that is unlike the finest sort of uh, sectioning you're going to do with a gravity core into discrete intervals would probably be a quarter of a centimeter of mud, which is a fairly small interval. The uh, full core scanning technology allows you to be uh, much more um, fine resolution than that. You can scan at higher resolution, might be a tenth, you know, might be a millimeter resolution that the scanner uh, device looks at. So you can look at higher resolution than would be in an in interval uh, that you've already sectioned into different uh, discrete levels. And on top of that, it can scan multiple things at once, so it can be really, really quickly. So the uh, device may be using X-ray fluorescence to scan four different metal compositions in the sediments. It may also be at the same time optically uh, visualizing it, so taking RGB photos of that. It may be uh, calculating the magnetic susceptibility at the same time. And there, it's all done in a single pass of the machine. So you get lots and lots of data really, really quickly. Uh, and that's a, a, in addition to being able to do this at really high resolution and having some interesting analyses, it can be done really quickly. And then on top of that, it's non-destructive technique. So the core is whole and you have all of that sediment available again after that analysis has been done, which may not be the case if you were to send samples away for metals analysis, for example, on discrete intervals. Yeah, because these machines, you would have like put the whole half core down directly onto it and covered it with like a saran wrapper of plastic layer. So the actual um, sediment is not being touched in any way. You're just basically doing a, um, um, I guess, not indirect's not the word, but... Um, yeah, it's like a Passover kind of yeah. analysis, yep. Yep. And uh, I guess the other thing to add on that is this is one technology that can be done, but there are other things that can be done on whole cores. You can take a core and put it in an x-ray machine or an MRI. There are people who take these down to the hospital on nearest, uh, at the near to the university campuses and put cores into medical imaging uh, devices. 
in order to get data. It's not done all the time, but for certain applications, if you want a magnetic resonance image of a sediment core, uh, that can that can in theory be done. So there are lots of ways to image the full core before you then break it apart. And a key thing of these kind of scanning approaches is they potentially also just do the volume of data on a bunch of different proxies uh, would potentially allow you to match cores. Um, whether you're talking about in a piston core uh, scenario where you have overlapping sections or multiple cores from the same basin, again, due to difference in compaction um, and how close they are together, they're not going to line up perfectly. There's going to be an element of like statistical analysis and wiggle matching, but these are the kind of things that will give you a full profile of data to do that kind of analysis on. So the next step after you've completed all of the analyses that you can do, or not that you can do, but that you're planning to do with uh, the full cores, um, the next step is working on individual intervals or slices through time. Um, and these uh, approaches are all going to be, um, is where you're going to get into more involved chemical analyses or um, procedures. Um, and basically they can be, or at least today we're going to, talk about three broad categories of these kind of analyses. We're going to talking about inorganic geochemical methods, um, with stuff like grain size, LOI, we'll get into that in a second. Uh, general stable isotope techniques of uh, carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen. Um, and then finally, touching very briefly on some of the organic chemical techniques that can be used. Yeah, and we'll try to keep them broken apart into those categories, but there's some that just for the description and, and linkages uh, may kind of methods that cross the boundary between those. So we'll identify what those are as we go through them. But the first thing we want to talk about is uh, grain size analysis. And that's an inorganic technique, obviously. We're thinking about the nature of the sediment. It's almost not really a geochemical technique. It's more of a descriptive technique. But it does have a kind of um, procedural component to it. So you have you don't just look at the material and say what it is. There's an analysis component, and it's as straightforward as determining the particle size distribution of that sediment in the interval that you're talking about. So you would integrate that sediment so that you're not taking a little bit out of the bag that might be kind of from one part of the core. You want to get a good homogenized sample, which you would for all of these analyses. If you've broken them into a bag, you want whatever you're going to say the uh, value of that indicator is to be representative of the entire bag, not one tiny little corner of it. So you want to homogenize the sediments well in order to make sure that you're talking about the whole interval. And then for grain size or particle size analysis, you would use a variety of different techniques. Generally, it's through some sort of laser scanner uh, to remove all the organic material because you want to look at the inorganic sediment uh, material. And then uh, calculate the grain size, the size class of a small sample of that to be representative of the bag. And generally, it gives you an idea of how much of the sediment is in the clay fraction, how much is in the silty fraction, how much is coarser grain size in the sand fraction. And you can do all different things. You can look at uh, the proportion of each of those classes. You can look at the mean grain size through the entire interval. Just give you some idea of how large the sediment pieces themselves, the inorganic sediment pieces themselves are in that interval and how those change can tell you about changing environmental conditions. Generally, more energy is required to deposit larger grains and that means that if you have more sand, you probably had a more energetic environment. If you have more clays and silts, you may have had a more a kind of uh, lower energy depositional environment. Unlike big changes within them would indicate, you know, big flood events or something like that. So if all of a sudden, if you have a fairly steady grain size profile and whatever the distribution is between clay, silt, and sand, then all of a sudden there's a big change and there's a huge amount more sand, you know, that kind of thing that would indicate is that there was some sort of big inundation, whether it was a mega storm, a mega flood, or river. erosion, yep. something, was, something was different that all of a sudden compared to the last couple of years, decades, centuries, millennia, whatever it is, something changed that was able to uh, bring a whole bunch of material that took a whole lot more energy than the lake was normally experiencing to get it in there. Yep, exactly. 
and then moving on to thinking about other inorganic geochemical techniques, a really common analysis uh, is to look at the proportion of the sediment that is uh, organic and then the proportion that's carbonate-based uh, inorganic material and then the portion that's silicate. And together, these are referred to as the loss on ignition method. And that's because the way in which you calculate this is to get rid of the things before that in terms of their uh, temperature that they are uh, ignited and combust at. Yeah. And so this is done in a fairly sequential order. So um, begins very simply. Like the first step in this process is you basically uh, dry the sediments um, just to remove any water. Uh, again, this will change through time. The sediments near the surface um, or the sediment water interface is going to be a lot more watery than the sediment further down. But so you kind of um, look at that by basically drying the sediments, probably doing this at like on the order of like, 80 degrees Celsius, you're just drying it off in a fairly simple oven. Yeah, um, or they could be freeze-dried as well. And then going further from there, um, the next step is uh, looking at the organic matter present. So basically, you we're now moving from a drying oven to an actual muffle furnace. So you'd be putting your samples in for some uh, um, interval of time at 550 degrees Celsius. be like the standard, like this in the, in the actual... Methodological procedures may vary a little bit, but generally we're talking something in order of 550, so where you're burning off, literally burning off the organic matter. So this would be an example we were talking earlier about destructive techniques because once you've combusted this material, you're never getting it back. So you, um, and then you weigh your sample again. So you would have weighed your sample initially, weighed it after drying it to see how much you lost in terms of water, weighed again and, um, to figure out how much you lost in terms of organic matter. And then go, so you've done this at 550 degrees, then you bump it up to 1,000 degrees. And at that point, you're uh, burning off the carbonate material and being left with just basically the inorganic or siliciclastic mineral materials that were left in the sediment. So you'd have your general fractionation between those categories done in uh, the sequential loss, loss on ignition approach. Yeah, exactly. And it's assumed that at the end, everything that's left over is that silicate minerals and, and things that are very, very resistant to high temperatures. Uh, and that can be a really use that can be a really useful technique. And one of the nice things about LOI is it can be done, even though it is destructive, uh, it doesn't use a ton of sediment. Uh, and it can be done quite rapidly. You can fill a muffle furnace with 40 or 50 crucibles and calculate a number of intervals quite quickly in you know the order of a day, probably between all of the heating and weighing and that kind of thing, a day to a day and a half to do uh, a decent number of samples. So that's a yeah. really powerful technique. I'll just point out just anecdotally, uh, muffle furnaces really vary in terms of capacity. I've seen ones where you can only maybe do like 10 samples in a shot. You and need a bigger muffle furnace if that's the case. And ones where you do more like 100 samples at a shot. Yeah, for sure. That is that is true. Uh, uh, the average kind of size that I've seen in labs, kind of paleolimnology labs, uh, probably are in that 40 to 50 range. Would you say that is a reasonable kind of number? Yeah, I, I guess. I'm not seeing a huge number. Just I think three total is <laughs> what I've actually uh, opened the door of. I think we have three on. I think there's two in our department <laughs> oh, la -di -da. geographers um and then i guess uh, a really good segue to that is one of the things about like i said one of the things about uh, loi is that often the value we're really interested in is the percent organic matter because we want to know how organic the sediment is versus how uh, inorganic it is but the thing about loi is that the majority of that organic matter is, is going to be assumed to be carbon and the remainder being organic nitrogen and then after that, phosphorus being the least uh, of the big three kind of uh, macronutrient sort of um, organic compounds. Uh, but you never know how much that is because you're just getting rid of all of the organic matter. So that includes all the carbon, all the nitrogen, and then all of the things that are much lower in concentration. Uh, if you want to get the exact amount of organic carbon and organic nitrogen, then you need to be able to measure those elements directly themselves. And that is part of a broad kind of uh, suite of techniques that are referred to as elemental analysis, and they tend to be carried out in a single machine. So a single elemental analyzer will calculate not the percentage of all organic matter, but the exact concentration of organic carbon in that, well, of carbon in that sample. 
And then the concentration of nitrogen, perhaps the concentration of silica, or um, sorry, uh, sulfur. So they often are CNS analyzers. Uh, and that is a, a powerful tool because then you can get the exact amount of carbon. If you want to know the organic carbon component of that, you need to get rid of the inorganic carbon in that sample. And that's usually done through some sort of acid digestion. So you'll take your dried samples, you'll put them into an acid desiccator with some hydrochloric acid, that'll drive off all the uh, inorganic carbon, leaving only the organic carbon, you submit those for well, you rinse off the acid, don't send acidic samples to the EA, uh, you get rid of all of that, and it'll tell you how much organic carbon is in that sample, which is really useful, and is an important first step to a lot of other analyses, especially the chemical analyses, uh, the organic chemical analyses, because how much sediment you need to analyze is based on how much organic carbon is in that sample. Uh, moving on to our laundry list of inorganic geochemical techniques is something we've already talked a little bit about when we talked about core scanning, and that is analyzing metals. So we've looked at carbon, nitrogen, sulfur uh, as three elements, but there are ways to measure many, many of the elements on the periodic table in terms of their concentration in the sediment. And many of those elements are, as we know, metals and metalloids. And that means that it's really often quite interesting to understand how much there is in that sediment whether that's because you're interested in contamination from metals or you're interested in changes in input from the terrestrial environment, which can be indicated by inputs of metals because they are in the geology. There are lots of different uh, metals that might be of interest and a suite of different analyses kind of techniques. Generally, these are done by uh, some sort of mass spectrometry, whether it's uh, ICPMS, whether it's AEA, there are different ways that they can be analyzed, but in general, it's some sort of direct analysis of the concentration of those different metals, usually through ICPMS. And I think one thing I'd like to kind of interject here or like segue or side, be thinking about, yes, you can measure the elements in the individual intervals, but for example, the elemental measurements of something like phosphorus would be of potentially limited value because, um, you know, if if you could measure, or well, you can measure phosphorus directly in the sediments, but if you believe those values were consistent through time, you wouldn't need to do diatom inferred total phosphorus concentration. So the idea being is some of these um, um, components within the sediments are, are actually potentially mobile. We touched on this a little bit in episode three when we're talking about cesium and how you you know sometimes you can have a very focused cesium peak that would be very very tight. Um, but then in some kinds of sediments, you know, cesium, the cesium itself can um, diffuse and and move around and sometimes see a much more diffuse peak. And um, so, yeah, so this is kind of like making a bit of a jump here, but just a bit of a throwback to what we are talking about in episode two in terms of the value of biomarkers. Sometimes you're going to need to use bioindicators to actually get measurements of these chemical yeah, components. Sure. Yeah, most people are familiar with the fact that when the sediment uh, water interface becomes anoxic, there's no oxygen there, then you can have internal loading of phosphorus as a common property of aquatic ecosystems. The I'm phosphorus not sure is most people are aware of that. Most people listening to this podcast are, Adam. I, we've been tracking our listeners. Uh, um, okay. Fair enough. Sometimes when the bottom of the lake loses its oxygen concentration, there's the potential for phosphorus to leave the sediment and enter back into the water column. It's a process that's called uh, internal loading of phosphorus. And it's a really pro big problem for lake managers because it doesn't matter how much phosphorus abatement you have in the actual uh, watershed. If there's all of this phosphorus locked in the sediment, then... Uh, and the lake loses its oxygen concentration at the bottom, it becomes anoxic, and that material comes out of the lake, then that's a big problem. That phosphorus is coming out of the sediments, and it's not just coming out of the top half centimeter, it's coming out of the entire sediment profile. So phosphorus moves quite a lot in the sediments under different, in this case, uh, oxygen conditions. And other elements like arsenic and antimony, which are in, kind of in the same uh, column of the periodic table uh, do the same sorts of things. So there is a lot of potential for different elements to move around the sediment. Some don't, some do, uh, really depends on that element and its chemistry under different conditions where they may be related to the redox conditions. So the oxygen uh, is often linked to that, could be under different organic matter concentrations in the sediment. Things may move around a little more. 
pH levels. That's a, yeah, for sure. Uh, the idea that you can measure something in the sediment doesn't mean that it's always been in that interval, but from a methodological perspective, these are some of the techniques to do that. But that's a really important aside, agreed. So continuing the segue um, into um, bioindicators or the callback to bioindicators, really um, the difference, because there's a lot of overlap between a lot of the topics we're covering in these first couple of episodes, and really what, what, what our separation here is in bioindicators versus physical or chemical indicators is really um, methodological. So um, in the bioindicator one, we're really, we really we're talking about stuff that you looked at in a microscope Whereas today we're talking about stuff that you would use other kind of means. So even though something like pigments, for example, are very much a biomarker, you're not going to be looking at pigments or looking for pigments um, using the sediments directly uh, through a microscope. You're going to use chemical techniques to isolate them from the sediments, uh, with the most common one being high-performance liquid chromatography, which is where you use a series of solvents um, to pull out polar molecules of increasing molecular weight out of the sediments. This is something I've read a bit about, but I've never actually done myself. Um, I've um, yeah, seen a lot of papers in, involving it. I think I may have seen a very old one while I was like, you know, taking chemistry classes in undergraduate uh, I remember, courses. I remember being taken to see Dermot Antonoides' uh, HPLC that he'd just gotten at the PALS meeting in 2008 maybe something like that you just arrived there uh, okay. i believe so in quebec city at that's laval but that's the only time i've ever seen one of these machines um hmm. to my knowledge anyway but yeah so we're not really going into uh, it, many of the techniques we're talking about today are the could be fleshed out uh, into complete episodal discussions or just touching and everything but that yeah. is just kind of covering our basis because we did get a question uh believe it or not, um, uh, <laughs> about, from someone who listened to our bioindicator episode asking, what about pigments? And yeah. the truth is, really, we're separating them methodologically rather than, um, you know, lumping all biomarkers together. Yeah. Uh, and although now, I guess, if we talked about NLKs, that would be a chemical method and some of those other things. So uh, that one we threw in just because it made sense at the time. With We're just making up stuff. as we go. Yeah, along, we have really. no idea what we're doing. Um but whether the, uh, the pigments are methodologically, I, I don't think we could tell you anything more than what Adams just said, and that probably stretched my knowledge as well. Uh, but they're really, really important because they can tell you about the different functional groups that are in the lake in terms of like sulfur-reducing bacteria because some pigments are unique to certain taxa, and then others are going to be much more ubiquitous, things like uh, chlorophyll and the different chlorophyll molecules can tell you about overall production in the lake uh, and so there's a lot of information that can be taken out of these different pigment analyses. And that's one of the ways in which we can estimate the overall production in the lake ecosystem. But there are others as well, such as uh, spectral uh, types of analyses. Yeah. And um, so if you're using HPLC to measure pigments, you're basically looking at uh, a certain amount of individual pigments such as chlorophyll so that'd be a pigment used by higher plants and then, but you have other pigments um, that are used by various types of algae and down its bacteria um, so you can also get an inf inferred measurement of the chlorophyll a um, using a um, spectral methods or oh my goodness go check my notes here i want to say it right uh spectral radiometers um, where you're actually looking at uh, the amount of absorbance um, or looking for the absorbance peak of a molecule like chlorophyll A um, in the sediment matrix itself and allowing you to infer chlorophyll that way. Yeah. Um, so you would, you, it's known from the nature of the chlorophyll molecule what range of the electromagnetic spectrum it uh, absorbs energy from and that's between 650 and 700 nanometers or something in that range uh, and because of that you know that if there's a change in the spectral reflectance and or absorbance in which are kind of analogs of each other uh, in that interval then you can use that to calculate and uh, use a little bit of math to tell you how much chlorophyll there is in that interval and one of the nice things about spectral techniques uh, in comparison to the chromatography examples for pigments is that they're, uh, at least the way that they're commonly done, uh, they're non-destructive 
unlike HPLC where the sediments are uh, destructed, uh, destroyed in their analysis. And then the other thing is that pigments being a chromatography method, they are being analyzed individually, whereas the spectral reflectance method it has been shown incorporates not just the pigments themselves, but also their degradation products, which you would have to analyze individually in uh, the HPLC method. So you get a little bit uh, of information on not just the pigment concentration itself, but also the, well, the pigment itself, but also the breakdown products. And I guess the other thing is that they're not really in the same way measuring concentration in the, as you would from a HPLC type of pigment analysis. There's trade-offs associated with both techniques uh, because of those different uh, positives and negatives there. And then just the last, last word for today on the spectral analyses would be, so in, in chlorophyll A, so you're looking at absorbance between 650 and 700 nanometers. You might sometimes see that referred to in the literature as visible reflectance spectroscopy. spectroscopy. Um, but more recently, um, you're starting to see, or there's some work being done to expand that range and you might, into the infrareds, you might see veer to near infrared uh, spectros spectroscopy, looking to infer trends in total organic carbon uh, in the sediment matrix. And this one is um, uh, quite interesting because unlike the chlorophyll A, where you're actually measuring it to a known quantity or known absorbent peak of an individual um, uh, molecule, uh, for the total organic carbon models, you're actually uh, looking at it compared to a calibration set. So you're not to reconstruct the total organic carbon that would have been in the water um, when that sediment was deposited. Deposited. So you're a couple of steps removed, but it seems to be working. Um, and uh, we can talk about that another day, but just kind of like capping spectral analyses off in for at least the tiny amount of it that Josh and I are familiar with. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, I think that uh, in my mind covers the most commonly used in organic geochemical techniques. There are undoubtedly others and we'll probably have to delve back into this topic in a special episode or a separate episode on just that component and maybe we'll dive a little deeper into those. But in I our... just realized, sorry, you know, again, pointing out how interconnected all these topics are, um, I just dropped the word calibration set with giving no reference at all to what that meant. And that's something that will come up when we're talking uh, next time about environmental reconstructions. Yeah, and also I just said that those are all inorganic geochemical techniques, but pigments are definitely not uh, inorganic. So we've been crossing the boundary a little bit here um, in order to talk methodologically and just put them into any sort of order. Maybe we'll come back to organic at the end, uh, in orga or organic chemical methods, and we'll move on to stable isotope techniques. And we're not going to talk a lot about this. I think we will need a whole episode on stable isotopes to really dive into the different isotopes. But the general idea of using stable isotopes being that unlike in episode three, when we talk about radioisotopes where there's a decay, stable isotopes are the same in the idea that they are uh, elements that have different numbers of neutrons for the common number of protons. So the element is defined by the proton count. Different neutrons give them different masses in terms of the nucleus. Uh, but unlike radioisotopes, these are stable or at least stable over the half-life of the earth itself. And that means they don't decay. So in uh, radio or a carbon-14 uh, radioisotope will eventually decay to a nitrogen isotope, whereas a carbon-13 isotope uh, will not, or a carbon-12, which is the most common isotope of uh, carbon. Carbons-12 and carbon-13 are considered stable because they don't undergo radioactive decay. So those are the type of uh, elements that we are talking about in this case. And uh, from a methodological perspective, they actually links, a, for some of them anyway, that you can find stable isotopes for lead and all of the different, uh, almost all of the different uh, elements of the periodic table can be analyzed for their stable isotope composition. Many of them are regularly done for paleo techniques of different kinds. But the ones that we often think of associated with paleo, other than some of the heavier um, metal elements like lead, are those of carbon. 
nitrogen and oxygen, which uh, we've already talked a little bit about. And methodologically, it's actually not that much uh, more challenging than the elemental analysis. The isotope ratio mass spectrometer, which is what actually measures the isotope ratios for these elements, is often an add-on to an elemental analyzer. So you'll put a sample on for percent carbon determination, percent nitrogen determination, and in addition after it's gone through that workflow of the machine, it will be passed on to a stable isotope, uh, an isotope ratio mass spectrometer, and that will measure the amount of carbon-13 to carbon-12 and nitrogen-15 to nitrogen-14. So those are the less common to most common uh, isotopes of those elements. And why would you want to do this, Josh? Why would you want to do it all in one analysis? Because it's much easier, Adam. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, it's kind of throwing you there. But why would you want to look at the difference between various stable isotopes? Well, they can tell you about all sorts of different uh, things that are going on. It really depends on the isotope you're talking about. But in general, the uh, idea being that under different environmental conditions, there will be environmental, including biological in some cases, there will be different fractionation of the isotope. So the process which results in one isotope being at a certain ratio, a certain proportion to the others, uh, depends on the environmental condition that they're occurring in. Uh, and you can look at the ratio of these and how they change in different media and how they change at different time periods in order to infer changes in the environment broadly what those environments and just to so, jump yeah. in yeah just jump in for a second um this is again this is uh one of these topics that is kind of outside of my wheelhouse um but so i'm kind of chiming in for someone that is less familiar with this general idea but the idea of fractionation i think uh for on the most simple level or the most straightforward example would be what you're talking about let's say stable isotopes of oxygen and uh um um the fractionation that would occur due to evaporation. So you would have uh, lighter isotopes of oxygen would be preferential. So you have water molecules with the, the oxygen, <clears throat> excuse me, the oxygen uh, atom would be with the heavier, uh, of the heavier 18, isotope. Yeah. Oxygen, yeah, oxygen 18, 18 being the heavy isotope, yeah. So um, oxygen 16 being the, the common one, yeah. Yeah, so oxygen 16 would preferentially evaporate um, over time uh, from the lake. So as time goes on, if evaporation is um, uh, the primary, I guess, force acting on the lake uh, compared to between two different lakes, the one with uh, more evaporation occurring will have a greater concentration of the heavier oxygen isotope in, uh, the, within its stable oxygen isotopes that we'd find in the sediments. Yeah, for sure. Chemistry is generally lazy, would be kind of a, a way to segue into this, is that from a chemical perspective, it may not seem that two neutrons, from our perspective, it may not seem that two neutrons is a big difference in weight, but for chemistry it is. And that means that uh, in general, when things need energy to evaporate or to move between media, uh, the lighter isotope is often going to do that, leaving behind more of the heavier isotope. So if you've ever seen reconstructions of changes in global sea ice, for example, or, or global ice volume related to long-term climate. Those are based on oxygen-18, well, they're oxygen isotope reconstructions. And as you go into the ocean environment, there's going to be more evaporation of the light isotopes. Those isotopes are going to go up into the clouds, the lighter oxygen-16, leaving behind oxygen-18 in the marine environment. The clouds are going to move on to land. And right now, in our interglacial period, Nothing really happens to them. They rain out on the land. They eventually come back to the ocean. No big deal. Uh, and then the volume doesn't change. When there's glaciers on the landscape, they evaporate. The clouds full of lighter oxygen-16 rain and snow onto the land, but it stays there as ice and doesn't come back to the ocean. And that means that the ocean becomes enriched in the heavier isotope over time. And you can use those changes in the oxygen 18 profile to say how the climate has changed in that reconstruction. But other isotopes, that's not the same process that's going to be driving them. For nitrogen, for example, often we're, from a paleo perspective, interested in changes in food web structure. So as you get more and more N15, the heavier of the nitrogen isotopes, those tend to accumulate as you move up the food chain. So if you look at a 
uh, algae, they're going to have the same nitrogen 15, 14 ratio is approximately the water that they're living in. But then as you look at zooplankton that are going to eat those algae, they're going to get rid of the nitrogen 14 and bring a little, and they'll have a little bit more in 15 in their cells. And then a little uh, planktivore, planktivorous invertebrate might eat them, and then it'll have a little more N15, and then a fish will eat that, and it'll have more N15, and then up and up the food chain until you get to the highest levels, and those are going to be quite enriched in the heavier isotope in, in that environment. And you can use that to track changes in, in that ecosystem. And just to like uh, go a little bit deeper in there, is you're not really or I guess you, you are sometimes, but you're not always looking at the bulk sediment here. You're isolating particular molecules that you're interested in to look at changes over time. So for example, um, cellulose, looking at the changes in the carbon oxygen isotopes within the cellulose molecules over time. So you do a process to isolate the cellulose from the sediments, and then you would do your stable isotope uh, techniques. For after. sure. Yeah, or you pick out diatoms and look at the oxygen isotope composition in the silica that make up their valves, the, their cell walls, uh, or we talked about ostracods as yeah, being a astrons. common oxygen 18 uh, in, in their structure as well. So it's, it can be on bulk sediment or it can be on more specific parts of the actual sediment itself or, or indicators. Com comes down to what you're trying to find out really. Yeah, and they'll tell you different things about the environment. Bulk sediment is going to be more integrative of the whole lake ecosystem, probably. Whereas, you know, you might get different habitats for different uh, ostracods versus diatoms. Lots of things that can be done with stabilized isotopes. We definitely need a whole episode on this now that we've talked about it for only a few minutes. I feel like we've just scratched the surface of this one. That's really the purpose of what we're doing today. Again, we're just establishing the vocabulary that we can do callbacks for what basically bins these various techniques can fall into okay so moving on to or maybe moving back to thinking about uh, geochemical methods we're going to talk about the organic molecules that can be analyzed in sediments very very briefly and we've talked about a couple of things already we looked at uh, in previous episodes we talked about alkanes and lignans and those other biomarkers Steroles and stanols. Steroles and stanols, thank you. Uh, and also today we've already talked about pigments as a organic molecule. Uh, and those are all the ones that are linked to, if not specific biological groups, then to uh, living organisms directly. But there are a whole class of organic molecules that are not necessarily linked specifically to biological organisms, but are present in the environment. We know there are organic molecules all over the natural world. Uh, and the way in which we often break these apart is to think about those that are uh, found both in natural and sort of from an anthropogenic perspective, human-driven uh, perspective. And then there are those that are entirely anthropogenic. There are no natural sources of these organic molecules. And that's a really important distinction because if you're trying to piece together the history of that environment, knowing that there is no natural source of this chemical uh, gives you an indication that if you find it, we know that there is some influence of humans historically in that location, even if it's from an atmospheric kind of global perspective. We know that it is from human activities. Whereas if we have some of these molecules that are natural as well, there may be processes completely in independent of humans that result in their being in that location. And that's an important distinction. From a perspective of what these molecules are, uh, the natural compounds we're often thinking about and the most commonly found in paleo studies are the uh, polycyclic aromatic compounds broadly or PACs. Uh, it's used to be more common to call them PAHs, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Uh, but PACs is a, is a more catch-all term because it incorporates orga um, organic molecules that aren't true hydrocarbons, which just have hydrogen and carbon, uh, such as the sulfur-containing dibenzothiophenes, basically, in the kind of analyses that we find. And those are molecules that have natural sources. So completely independent of humans, you could go to a place where there's a natural oil seep or where biomass organic molecules are being combusted, burned, you're going to get PAHs in that location. Every time you throw a steak on the grill, you're creating 
PACs in the environment. They're ubiquitous De- in the delicious. De- yeah, they're delicious <laughs> as well. Uh, exactly, and that's just part of the the way in which organic chemistry works. So there are lots and lots of sources of PACs in the environment, including some that are, if not uh, entirely by human, uh, enhanced by human activity. So uh, oil and gas operations where we're burning carbon uh, is going to result in PACs. Or where we are extracting these resources, there can be the potential for contamination that results in PACs uh, entering into the environment. And the reason we care is that some of these compounds are known to be toxic, carcinogens or mutagens and, and that sort of thing, and others perhaps aren't that uh, that case. So that is a large class of, group, of compounds. Yeah. And even if, um, you know, when you're dealing with some of these that are naturally occurring, what you'll be looking for often is a potential spike in their concentration in the sediments that would coincide with oil and gas development or, you know, uh, refinery operations or something like that. Yeah. Uh, car emissions, uh, vehicle emissions from combustion of uh, internal combustion engines. Yeah, for sure. You find PACs absolutely everywhere. Uh, and, but they can be used for telling you about uh, other processes that aren't humans either. Forest fires are a massive uh, source of PACs in the environment because of all the biomass that's being burnt. And you can use them in addition to, for, say, charcoal uh, to track some such uh, activities. Yeah, so having two independently measured proxies that are telling you a little bit about the same thing is a fairly useful tool for um, uh, reinforcing whatever you're seeing. Yeah, and it's such a, when I say PAC, it's a massive class of organic compounds. They're basically just fused benzene rings in different combinations from the lightest, low molecular weight things like naphthalene up to massive, large five, six ring compounds. Um, Not as common, but they do exist. So they themselves, the different PAC compounds are going, or PA compounds, I guess, are going to tell you about different processes occurring. So there's a ton of chemistry related to PACs that can be really, really useful in a paleo setting. And then going from there, or continuing from there, so going going from uh, ones that are also, that are naturally occurring, there's a large classes of uh, organic chemicals out there that are not naturally occurring and a, you know, directly related to uh, human activities. So we're talking about things like organochlorine pesticides and PCBs, PCBs polychlorinated biphenyls, any uh, organic molecule that humans have created for their purposes. Uh, often, one of the things we want about them is them not to break down very quickly because we've made them for a particular purpose. They often are expensive to make and distribute and that kind of thing. So we don't want them to break down so they can be persistent in the environment. So we often class these as persistent organic pollutants uh, as a big group of uh, compounds and things like PCBs, or you may have heard of DDT, uh, which is a pesticide, uh, are all examples of... uh, molecules that don't exist in nature they've been created in human laboratories and human petrochemical plants uh, for a specific purpose and once applied to the environment they can be persistent for many many years so pcbs haven't been released uh, in canadian uh, locations for a long time now but we still find them you know almost ubiquitously in the sediments of the vast majority of lakes in canada because of their long history of use and broad use, and then also because of how persistent they are in uh, the environment. And there are others that could be falling in thing, falling into these categories, things like perfluorinated acids as a broad group, brominated flame retardants, which sounds like a, a strange term, uh, but they're found in, maybe not anymore, but not long ago, they were found in you know every household things to stop your consumer products from catching on fire, like your couch catching on fire. Your mattress. Yeah, absolutely. So anytime those get thrown into the uh, landfill or go up in a fire, in a house fire, for example, those compounds are being released to the environment and uh, can be persistent for a long time period there. Okay. So I think uh, we're going to wrap it up there. So that's the end of our um, organic chemical methods section within our physical chemical indicators episode. Uh, We covered a lot of ground really, really quickly. 
and um, in some cases probably did a terrible job, um, let us know. And most of these topics will eventually be revisited in more detail going forward. Yeah, maybe bringing in experts on some of them uh, to talk about them. (laughs) That would be great. (laughs) If you're an expert in one of of these methods and yeah, you'd like to join as as a guest on the podcast, let us know. We would be happy to have you. Because again, there are lots, lots and lots of techniques out there and absolutely nobody is an expert in everything. Uh, everyone has their specialties. And so even though, you know, you'll come across when you're, you know, reading about particular studies, a lot of these things, it's easy to know what they are in a very general sense without having any real clue of how they work. Yeah, and some of them are just complicated topics. The chemistry of, uh, you know, organic molecules is is whole degrees just to be able to talk about that so summarizing them in a few minutes is is never going to do the full topic justice and gives us a chance to revisit them in the future because they are some really interesting examples and then maybe we'll dive into when we talk about them individually a couple of really cool studies that have analyzed them and some of the things they found from from that analysis okay so uh um we're going to call it quits for now but uh, if you want to get in contact with us, um, again, questions are absolutely great. You can uh, send them to us via email at coreideaspodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Um, you can uh, get in touch with us directly on Twitter, and that's where you'll get the fastest response uh, from us. Because um, uh, we're not really checking the email address every single second of the day, but where we have phones with Twitter on them. Um, and uh, that is Core Ideas Paleo, P A L E O, on Twitter. So send us a message, and we'll uh, we'll be happy to hear from you. Okay, and and then one last thing is also we have a, our website. Um, we basically are using as a archive of um, all our episodes so far, and there's a uh, some show notes to accompany summaries if you want to. Well, not a whole. We're not going to have a whole lot of details about what we covered today, but um, just going forward, uh, coreideas.ajezirski.ca is our website, and um, there's funny memes on there sometimes. We have funny memes. <laughs> We think they're funny anyway. (laughs) We think they're funny. And that's really all that matters. That's why we're here. (laughs) Just talking to each other mostly. Mostly. Uh, But we've actually been really quite pleased uh, with all of the feedback. So thanks for listening. Uh, Continue uh, if if you wish. And um, we look forward to the next few episodes. I guess guess the last thing we can say is that in our general overview, a little bit more methodologically driven episodes we only have one more i think that we uh have planned right yeah so teaser for uh next time uh, we're going to be looking at environmental reconstruction so we've uh referred to them in a couple different ways but basically uh looking at you know for example uh, mentioned today uh phosphorus if you can't measure the phosphorus directly in the uh, sediments uh how could you get about inferring what phosphorus conditions used to be like over the last couple hundred, if not a couple hundred years, if not longer, in a lake, and uh, that will be the kind of environmental reconstruction we'll be talking about next time. Uh, so, once again, uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we hope to uh, hope to see you soon again next time. Bye. Thanks. <laughs>